So, Mark. Yes. When I was doing research for next week's episode, I came across an interview with Alexander Payne, the writer slash director. Of next week's episode. Of next week's episode, right. And other things as well. (laughs) Next week's movie. He did not write and direct our episode that will be released next week. (laughs) Mark. I've got some surprises coming up next week. Oh, man. Anyway. In this interview that came out in about 2004, Payne was saying something that I thought was really interesting. And what he was saying was that he really regretted the demise of the B-movie. Yeah. Not the DreamWorks animated film. Stay tuned for updates regarding that movie. (laughs) No, he was talking about B-movies like the sort of schlocky, lower quality, lower budget movies that used to go in theaters. If you go way back, they would actually be paired with an A-movie, a higher quality one in the theaters. But he was saying that the real value of the B-movies, besides being good fodder for Mystery Science Theater, was that they provided a space for young directors to get started, to try out their craft and to get used to things. Right. And what he was saying was that the loss of these B-movies has really been a loss because it's hard for directors to have that space to play around. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like that's one of the things we've seen recently, where you direct like a nice million dollar movie and then they give you star wars right there's no in between there's no uh trial run there's no mid-budget movies or better yet b movies and Payne in the interview was talking about how instead of the traditional b movie we have things that would have been b movies and his examples from 2004 are catwoman and van helsing what 2004 references? I know, aren't they? Amazing. I have not seen Van Helsing, but I vividly remember the TV ads. I think I've seen Van Helsing, but I have not seen Catwoman. No, I have not seen Catwoman. Has anyone? I mean, I'm sure Halle Berry's mom did. <laughs> Just like our moms are the only ones listening to this podcast. Our mom, and of course, everyone on NPR One, tune in to your local NPR station. Make sure to donate to support public radio. It's been a while since you've listened to a campaign drive, haven't you? Uh, you know, I listen to NPR on podcasts, so they mention it, but I don't get the the full the full begging quality. Right, exactly. I've kind of lost it. Right. But anyway, so one of his points was the things that would have been B-movies in the past now are the ones that are the most expensive and the most complicated to make. Yeah, that's fair. And the reason that I was thinking about all this in the context of Vertigo is that pretty early on in my watching the movie... I just wrote on the side of the page, I wish Hitchcock had made a monster movie. That would have been pretty cool. It would have been awesome. He would have been great at it. I was watching all these shots in Vertigo. There's a real sense of dread that he's able to build with very little in the way of effects. It's all camera work and pacing. I mean, that's Hitchcock. Right. But imagine that with the creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know if you would ever see a monster in a Hitchcock monster movie, though. I mean, that could still work. It it would still work. Uh, The movie Cat People is just like that. I have not seen Cat People. Me neither, but I've heard good things about it. And by that, I mean I listened to the episode of You Must Remember This about it. (laughs) Another great movie podcast. That's the only source for information about movie history, right? Essentially. There's an episode of Dear White People that contains just a conversation about You Must Remember This. It's a great podcast. I know, but I was watching that and I was like, how have we hit this point in podcast social penetration? Or maybe we haven't. And we've just hit such a point where there are so many TV shows that you can get away with doing that. I think it's more the second one. Yeah, it's probably that one. But anyway, Hitchcock should have made monster movies. There is going to be a network sitcom about podcasts, I saw that with Zach Braff. Yeah. No interest in watching it. No, of course not. I was reading Linda Holmes, who's on... She's the host of Pop Culture Happy Hour at National Public Radio. And she was saying that the funniest thing about it is that they record in an open room, like an open plan office with just people bustling around... And nothing in the way, which means you'd be getting a lot of ambient noise on that podcast. That sounds terrible. Yes. But sitting around in a closed-off room is not that cinematically interesting. Yeah, it's almost like trying to watch someone make a podcast wouldn't be great fodder for a television show. Speaking of, check out our local Access TV show that Will and I are planning, where you just watch us make this podcast. We're also going to be in development with a show that will chronicle the making of some of our movies, most notably Soul Train. I've been working on some storyboards for it. Opening, it's on a dark beach in the dead of night. There's fog rolling in off the sea. (laughs) You can see a thunderclap in the distance, and out of the fog we see the railroad tracks. Two kids are playing on the railroad tracks. Do they get struck by lightning? These tracks have been abandoned for years. Nothing's ever happened on this track. It's just by the sea in the dead of night. 
the rumble of the thunder gets louder and louder, and then suddenly, with a bolt of lightning and the sound of a screaming train, the children are struck, and in a flash of light, they vanish. We're six minutes in. The screen goes in. black, and you can hear the train whistle going by. We're six minutes in, and we have not talked about Vertigo. We've talked about Hitchcock in theory. We have yet to discuss the movie we're here to talk about. So that's the opening scene of Soul Train. I'm going to cut you off. We're going to talk about Vertigo. Hello, and welcome to Heart of Podness. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Are they even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is the main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. So this week, we're talking about the 1958 Alfred Hitchcock movie, Vertigo. Ooh. It stars uh, James Stewart and Kim Novak. Yeah, it does. And it is a very classic Hitchcock. Um, Are there degrees of classic? Yeah, I mean, they're all probably. I feel like Vertigo is closer up there with Psycho and Rear Window than, say, Rebecca is. Which is interesting, because that wasn't really the consensus when it came out. Right. Um, it's not North by Northwest, which is, you know, in its own category, according to a lot of places. But I think it's now considered one of the better known ones, at least. It's now considered one of the best movies of all time. Right. No, it's a great movie. I love this movie. Yeah, but when it came out, it got very much mixed reviews. Even the people who liked it were kind of mixed on it. Really? Yeah. It, uh... It wasn't a huge hit. It just barely made back its money. It made $2.8 million on a budget of two and a half. But also, there was just a real sense that it was a little bit complicated or a little bit confusing. And it's not really until... I mean, there were people who appreciated it. There were a lot of people who appreciated it at the time. Right. And there are people in the time since then who appreciated it. But it's really after it gets re-released in the 80s that it starts to build up this critical consensus around it. That makes sense. It actually fell out of circulation for a while in the 70s. Hmm. Uh, yeah, not m many blockbusters back then. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of great cinema happening in the 70s. Right. But No, I mean the store where people oh, yes. could go check out movies like Vertigo. Well, yeah, I mean like circulation in terms of that's the age of the re-release in theaters. Yeah. And so they weren't really doing that right. when they were doing other Hitchcocks. Uh, what was your first Hitchcock? I, you know, had not seen a lot of Hitchcock. I saw my first Hitchcock when I saw the birds on a plane last summer. <laughs> And here's my thing about The Birds. The Birds was almost one of my favorite movies, and then The Birds showed up. Not because I'm complaining about the effects on The Birds. That's what some people complain about. I don't care. I saw Birdemic first, so The Birds and The Birds look awesome. No, my objection with The Birds is that the first half hour of it is a brilliant screwball rom-com, where she's putting on these elaborate ploys, setting up these pranks to mess with this dude that she barely knows, and it's really funny, and it plays really well. And both of the characters seem really great. And then it turns into a movie where they're running from birds. And it's like, yeah, it's still good, but I fell in love with the first one. Yeah, I haven't seen birds yet. Um, I think my first was Psycho. Oh, okay. I watched it way back in sixth grade. My mom loves Hitchcock. So mm -hmm. I've grown up watching a lot of Hitchcocks, including some of the deeper cuts, like Rope, which is a great movie, despite its uh, connection between homosexuality and pure evil oh i do know about this one yeah so my funny psycho story is that when i was in college i worked with this dude and we were talking about tv and he was telling me about watching the amc series bates motel oh yeah i've heard of that. which is a prequel series about norman right. bates and, and his he mom was, right and he was just talking about this show and i was like oh cool yeah i've never seen that but i've been meaning to watch psycho for a long time dude had no idea that it was based what? on a movie. He had no idea there was a movie about it. How do you it. not know about Psycho? And so just in talking about what I knew about Psycho, I accidentally like spoiled the TV show for him, I guess. Oh my God. That's on him. You can't, you can't claim you had Psycho spoiled for you. Right, exactly. Oh my God. That's a great movie though. But the reason I figured we should talk about Vertigo is because Vertigo is one where the relationship comes first and the murder comes second, I'd say. In terms of what the plot cares about? Right. In terms of what the plot cares about. Oh, for this sure. This is less about the actual crime I mean, than the it is about the people. the murder is barely discussed. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of Hitchcock movies, it is more of a classic whodunit mm -hmm. or something along those lines. But this is one where it's about like these two people and their relationship, which happens to take place surrounding a murder. A murder. A murder in San Francisco. <laughs> which actually is not where the book is set. 
Really? Yeah. So Vertigo is based on a book. It's based on a French a novel. A French book, yeah. Yeah. It's called uh, D'Entre les Morts. Claire's going to make so much fun of you for that. I am proud. I am not ashamed. I am a strong person. Okay. It's called Among the Dead. And Hitchcock had actually wanted to adapt the guy's previous novel, but it was optioned by somebody else. So Paramount optioned this movie for him before it was even translated into English. Really? Just to be like, we're getting it for you. I wonder if anyone read it in French. I mean, somebody must have, right? Someone must have. And actually, three different people wrote drafts of the screenplay. Like, they had one guy write it, a playwright. Then Hitchcock didn't like that draft. So then they had another guy write it. Hitchcock didn't like that draft either. So then they had a third guy write it, Alec Koppel. And he was from San Francisco. And so he set the movie in San Francisco. And that's actually where the vertigo element comes from. Because that's not in the book either. Really? Yeah. Whoa. The book is just about, like, the romance. Right. But the actual acrophobia thing was Koppel and Hitchcock decided like, hey, we've got San Francisco. How can we make that setting a part of the story? Right. And so they decided to play with acrophobia as that aspect. Which San Francisco is such a big part of this movie. Right. Too, it's which so, is so key interesting. to the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alec Koppel also created the character of Midge. She's not in the book either. I love Midge. Midge is the best. We're going to talk so much oh, about Midge. Yeah. So many things. This is mostly a Midge episode. I want to warn everyone, including you, right now. Oh, Midge is by far the best character in this movie. Oh, yes. I'm so glad you agree. Who wouldn't agree? Midge is the most, one of the most interesting women in cinema in the 50s. She's fascinating. I'm obsessed with Midge. I love her so much. Good, because I'm not going to stop talking about her this entire episode. Oh, Midge. The only reason I would stop talking about Midge would be to pitch the next scene of Soul Train. So we hear the chugga no, chugga. literally, Will, this is taking too much time all of our episodes are approaching an hour and we need to make cuts somewhere let's keep going they're gonna cross the hour eventually and it's gonna be our two hour back to the future episode oh god it's gonna be great it's gonna be a two-parter no it's gonna be one two-hour episode i will fall asleep in the middle though it's recording gonna... not listening <laughs> i don't really need you for that one <laughs> it's the power of love it's going to be two hours because it's just going to be that song on repeat for two hours. No discussion. I have a playlist that's just that. That's not a playlist, Will. Just hit repeat one. It's really easy. It's more fun this way. You don't need to make a playlist. Oh, boy. Mark, you don't know how to have any fun. So anyway, uh, Mark, I guess, wants to start talking about the movie. Yeah. And before we start talking about the points, speaking of Midge. Yes. So... I have never understood people who, like, fall in love with characters in movies. And then I saw Midge, who is the best movie character I've ever seen in my life. Midge is the best. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so he, what I want to say is that Midge appears in the second scene of this movie and is great. Right. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm so pumped for this. And I started taking notes about Midge and Scotty. And I was like, great, cruising along. And then a little bit into the movie... We get the main plot with Kim Novak's character. And at first I'm like, okay, this is the plot. He's going to do the investigation thing. And then I start getting a sense of like, oh, there might be some, some romance stuff going on here. And I made a decision right then that said, no, I'm anti this romance. I'm only taking notes about things that involve Midge. <laughs> so all of my notes are Midge related. So everything else I'm working off memory. And I just want to give you that warning now. <laughs> all right. That's fair. Midge is the best. Midge is the best. So... Just want to get that out of the way, let you know in advance. But yeah, I guess it's kind of a romance, but I mean, by the time the movie starts... It's mostly over. It's uh, She's still really into him. She's still into him, which is honestly, in my opinion, her worst quality. I really wish Midge was as over Scotty as Scotty is of Midge. Yeah. Because then she would just be this perfect independent person with no like ties to the past. Midge is the best. Oh, I love her so much. Okay, so why don't you set the stage for us to get into the movie? Okay, so the movie starts before point one to set the scene of why this movie is called Vertigo, because that's kind of important to know. Ooh. The movie starts with Jimmy Stewart, Scotty, also known as John, also known as... Johnny. Johnny. He's got a lot of names. Also known as Jack? It's, no, it's not Jack. Not Jack. That's the one we know it's not. It's like reading a Russian novel where they have yeah. eight different nicknames and they all start with different letters. Yeah, so John, Johnny, Scotty... And a uniformed policeman are chasing a criminal across the roofs of San Francisco. Scotty's a plainclothes detective. Right. So he's a detective. They're chasing this criminal across the roofs of San Francisco. It looks like the rooftops in Mary Poppins. Kind of. But honestly, it looks like the roof of the building my cousin lived in when I went and visited 
And I was just like, is this actually the neighborhood where she was? Because the view is kind of the same. Oh, wow. So they're running. You can see the bay in the background. It's really pretty. But one of the roofs, 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 <laughs> roofs, two of the roofs are pretty far apart. A The burglar jumps across and makes it. The plane, the policeman, cop, the policeman jumps across and makes it. Scotty jumps across and misses and is hanging on to the gutter. And you're like, oh, no, the first build character might die in this moment. Hey, man, Mark (laughs) Hamill had zero lines in The Force Awakens. Fair. So the cop turns around, lets the criminal get away to save Scotty. He comes over and is like, give me your hand. Give me your hand. But. The cop falls and dies. No! So the cop falls off the roof, and Johnny looks down, and that's when he develops acrophobia. Yes. And starts feeling vertigo. Which was a surprise to me, because I thought this was going to be an Arrested Development spinoff about Liza Minnelli, and I was sorely disappointed when it was Jimmy Stewart at the beginning. That would be called The Dizzies. Oh, right. But... Yeah, they use this awesome vertigo visual effect. Right. Which they did by putting a camera on a dolly, and then you move the dolly forward or backwards while also changing the zoom on it, which is pretty cool and pretty oh, snazzy way really to cool, do it. Yeah. It looks awesome. There's a lot of really cool graphics in this. Yeah, I'm, and the opening titles of it, where it's just on Kim Novak's face, and we see the titles coming up on it, and like right. Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo spins out of her eye. I made a note. It's like, this is the artiest movie we've ever watched by the time we get to the title. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, So that's the opening of the movie. And that brings us into point one, Midge's apartment. So we're in Midge's apartment. Johnny and Midge are hanging out. Midge is just busy being the best. Midge is drawing because Midge... She's an illustrator. No, she's a, a lingerie designer. Like, she designed that brassiere. I didn't realize she designed it. I thought she was the illustrator for it. Maybe she's just the illustrator. I think she's the actual... I think she's actually designing these underwear. Because there's other ones in the apartment, too. And, you know, part of designing clothes, the first step is drawing. Right. I thought you, like, illustrated the ads. Maybe. So we know she's a drawer. Yeah. I like to think that she owns her own small business designing underwear. But so she has this beautiful apartment in San Francisco. They're hanging out. They're chatting. They're talking about how he now has vertigo. And that he's quit the police force. Right, which has caused him to quit the police force. This scene is very much exposition. Right, and she's saying he could have stayed on the force, he could have taken a desk job, there was no need for him to have to do this. This will now involve another job transition for him, because before this he was a lawyer, and then he decided to become a detective. Right, he wanted to like do good in the world, that old... Subtle burn at lawyers. <laughs> yeah, that old shtick. Um, so they're talking, and she's kind of helping him, like they're practicing in a way. He stands on a stool, and then he starts climbing a stepladder. This is awesome because this is a space where it's done so gradually, climbing up one step and then looking around to see if his acrophobia is triggered. Right. Then climbing another step. And it's one of those moments where Hitchcock builds out the drama so much just by waiting for him to take this step. And so obviously this is Jimmy Stewart doing this too. But there is a real sense of tension watching a guy take a step on a stool it's really impressive and he doesn't feel it on the stepladder until he looks down out the window out the window yeah which triggers it i will say i think this movie kind of exaggerates how tall the buildings in the parts of san francisco where they are are because i would say in that region the buildings are probably no more than four or five stories up it's just worse because he has the acrophobia okay. so he perceives it as being taller yeah but it's also like when the cop fell off it was depicted as him like falling off the roof of a skyscraper. I think, again, that's more supposed to be Scotty's perception than anything else. Yeah. He sees this and he's horrified. Like, it's almost like time slows down and he just watches this guy fall for so, so long. If it really is near where my cousin lived, I would say like the falls would have been survivable. <laughs> survivable. Depending on how your body lands. Yeah. That climbing up the step stool also is a great time to mention this movie has a really incredible score. Oh, yeah. By Bernard Herrmann. Where one of the things I like about it is it's not really like a traditional horror movie score, but the way that he makes it really creepy is just the notes tend to be drawn out for a really long time before transitioning. So you're like waiting for the next note, which creates this sort of unsettling feeling. There's lots of oboe in it too, and oboes are creepy. Yeah, they are pretty creepy. Oboes are so creepy. I like the oboe when it's played well. But but it's never played well. When the oboe is played poorly, it's like the worst instrument. Yeah, it's like the piccolo. Piccolos are terrible. Yeah, they're the same way. So in the midst of all this... right. 
we get some more exposition about Scotty and the best movie character ever. And that's where uh, Scotty actually asks her how her love life is. Right. And she says, uh, it's following a train of thought. And basically, she's making it clear, like, there is no love life because I'm in love with you and this isn't happening. Right. She says, you know, there's only one man for me. And he goes, me? We were engaged once. And she's like, yeah, three whole weeks. And he points out that she's the one who called off the engagement. He actually asks her out for a beer and she's like, nah, I got to work. Yeah. So she still likes him, but she's aware that he doesn't like her and doesn't want to get into that. The pity. Right. Exactly. A pity based relationship or anything like that. Because she's Midge. She gets what she wants. She's the best. She's the best. Also, I was watching and I was struck by how much all of the clothes Midge wears are so in style right now. Especially her glasses. Midge's glasses are awesome. Like, they've, we've come full circle back to Midge as fashion icon, I feel. She should always be a fashion icon. Oh, she's the best. Midge. But to move us on to point two. While he's in the apartment, he says he's heard from this old friend from college or high school or something. What's his name? Gavin Elston? Yeah, Gavin Elston. So he's heard from him, and he wants to talk. So that basically brings us to point two, which is a much longer point than point one. So point two starts with Gavin Elston explaining the case. Because Jimmy Stewart is a former detective who is this guy's friend. But they haven't seen each other in years. They haven't seen each other in years. Since like before the war, right? I think at one point, Gavin's talking about what he did during the war. So it's been like 15 years maybe or more. Okay, that makes sense. So he invites him to his office. They're like doing the casual catch-up thing. And then he basically says, I want you to follow my wife. Something is weird. Yeah, and he says that his wife might have some mental issues. Right. He starts off by asking if Scotty believes that the dead can come back and influence the living. So there's like an undercurrent of supernatural. Right, of possession. Possession. And he's saying like, look, I have noticed this weird stuff going on with my wife. I don't want to talk to a doctor until I have more information because I want to hopefully find out that everything's okay or at the very least have the information to give the doctor what they need to help her. Right. You know. It's like, it makes sense. Kind of keep it on the DL too. Right. It's not an era of enlightened feelings around mental health right precisely (laughs) um i was really struck in this scene by out the window of gavin's office there are a lot of cranes a lot of skyscrapers again playing up the verticality right of san francisco yeah which i thought was really cool and i just in general when we were watching from russia with love a few weeks ago i noticed that the sets in that movie are really sparse right and when watching that movie i was like ah you know it's what people are used to I think it looks a little odd, but I'm not going to criticize the movie for it. But then I watched this movie, which is made six years earlier and for much less money. And the sets are so detailed and so brilliantly done and laid out and so lived in, in a way, that I think, again, one of the things that makes this movie so great is that every part of it is so well put together that, you know, nothing is left to the side. And part of that is Hitchcock's own... Neuroses. Yeah, his own neuroses, uh, some of which we'll definitely talk about as part of this movie. Yeah. But it was something that really struck me. These sets, the music, all of these pieces work together so well to create this San Francisco. The choice to put him as a shipping person so that you can have the cranes in the background. Right, exactly. Because it never matters that he's in shipping, but it gives us that backdrop, which is never acknowledged. It's just there. I also find it really funny when they were looking at the picture and they were like... Ah, San Francisco, like back in the 1800s when it was really wild and now it's just so calm. And I'm like, girl, wait till you see it in 2018 because you won't recognize it. They talk about the mission as Skid Row. Yeah. Probably some of the most expensive apartments in the world are near the mission now. Yeah. It's insane. So that is basically the inciting moment for the plot. Right. And so the rest, so point two is now that he's doing this, he starts following this woman, Kim Novak, mm-hmm. known as Madeline, yes. Madeline Elston. That's right. There That's we- her name. So he starts following her. He sees her at her apartment. He follows her in a car to a museum. An art museum. Flower shop first. Yes, the flower shop. So he follows her to a creepy alley, which is a nice touch. Uh, Because you're like, ooh, drama, suspense. And then you see a customer. It's a back entrance to a flower shop. And it's a back entrance to a park. It's almost like the Tiffany's entrance in Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, it's like that. But it was a nice, I thought it was a nice touch because they had a sign that said customer parking. So it's not even like she's doing anything weird entering the building through the back. She's just parking. Yeah. So she, then she gets back in the car and drives 
to the Legion of Honor Museum, Mm -hmm. which is where things actually do get a little weird because she's just sitting and staring at a painting. This painting of this woman in a very like big elegant dress. She's got a big necklace on. Right, holding flowers. It looks sort of like 18th century, probably. Yeah. Mm, yeah, early 1800s, maybe, kind of. Maybe a little bit. It's yeah. Spanish-influenced, for sure. Right. Uh, so she's looking, just staring really intently at this painting, holding flowers. And he's watching the painting, and he yeah. realizes this weird thing where... She looks kind of like the lady in the painting. Oh, yeah. They have the same hairstyle. Right. Which suggests, again, like, oh, this woman is dead, and now Madeline looks kind of like this woman. Right. So he asks one of the gallery workers, one of the docents, to give him a booklet of the paintings, and that's where he finds out that this is a painting of someone named Carlotta Valdez. Right. We don't find out much about her at this point, actually, do we? No. Over the course of this point, we find out that she lived in San Francisco. She was a dancer who became the mistress of a rich man who built a house for her, and they had a kid together, but then he takes the kid and leaves her alone. I think this is the opera that they go to see in Pretty Woman. (laughs) It easily could be. It could be. (laughs) That's in San Francisco. I know. It all comes full circle. Guys, every movie we cover is all it's part a of the same universe. cinematic universe. It's all in the Shrek CU. <laughs> so this woman, we find out, kind of went crazy. Yes, over right. She grief, committed suicide. She And then she commits suicide. Over the grease of losing her son, uh, she commits suicide. Daughter? Child. And we find out that Madeline is Carlotta's great-great-granddaughter. Right. And Spooky. the graveyard is here, right? Yeah. So this is when she goes to the graveyard. And sees Carlotta's grave. And kind of just stares at it for a while and then right. leaves the flowers there. And then she goes to an old Victorian building called the McKittrick Hotel. Right. In a scene that is never really explained. No. It never comes back. <laughs> the, it's, so he goes in and he asks the like hotel owner who's in that apartment because he sees her in the window. He says, oh, I'm a cop. So she's like, oh, I'll tell you. It's blah, 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 blah. She says her name's Carlotta. Then... He's like, is she here? The hotel owner's like, no, her keys. She right hasn't back been here. in in like three she days. She hasn't been in a while. And he's like, let's go check. So they go up, and she's not there. And then he goes downstairs, and her car is gone, and it's spooky. But it's never explained. No, it's not. Like, which is weird to me because Hitchcock usually everything is very particular, but this is just something that's yeah. I have no idea what was there. going on there. It's just, like we just have no idea. So then after this, we get some more exposition, like he does more investigating. He asks Midge who she knows, who knows old San Francisco history, and she takes him to this. Because she knows everybody. Because she knows everybody, because Midge is the best, and we should have a spinoff about Midge being a working girl in San Francisco and investigating the history of San Francisco and finding out about its legends and being the best person ever. Yeah. This isn't my movie pitch for today. This is what we're making after Soul Train. Okay. And the sequel. <laughs> yeah, we're making Vertigo 2, the saga of Midge. I would watch that. That's its official name. It's the only way we're going to sell it is by making it a franchise movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the only thing that gets made these days. Right. Oh, commentary. Right. So what we do is there's an alternate ending to this movie, which we'll talk about at the end. So we're going to have Vertigo re-released with a new alternate ending where Samuel L. Jackson comes and recruits Midge <laughs> to be part of the League of San Francisco Occult Historians. Uh, Why are you anti-fun? That... Started strong, but I found your League of San Francisco occult historians kind of weak, Will. No, that's this would be awesome. We team her up with like other mid-century, like kind of oddball characters, and they just investigate Indiana Jones-style curses around San Francisco using their knowledge of history. But only San Francisco? Yeah. It's a very small city, land-wise. Right, that's part of what's cool. It's not about in the buildings, it's what's under the buildings. Cool. Mm-hmm. But after investigating, he continues following her until they get to Fort Point, which, if you don't know it, Fort Point is this, like, rock cropping on sea level off the Presidio right under the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, on the San Francisco Bay. Yeah, so it's an old Civil War era fort that was used to protect the bay. And so you see right across, like, right under the bridge. And so she's sitting on a bench looking out over the water. It's like, oh, what a nice spot. Then she goes up to the edge and she jumps in Ah! Ah! so then james stewart or scotty rescues her and they go back to his place and this brings us to point three by the way in point two when he was talking to midge about all this he tells midge about the whole deal right and she asks if madeline is pretty and he says yes and she says she'll go and take a look at that painting and gets out of his car uh 
Midge is the best. Midge is the best. Well, it's just going to keep a running commentary on everything Midge does. Everything I wrote down about Midge is going to get in this episode. Cool. Well, why don't you take us through point three? Point number three. You've got this labeled as falling in love. Which sounds a lot more romantic and less creepy than this movie. It's so creepy. Good God, this movie is creepy. Oh, it's so creepy. Every single character except Midge is really creepy. Yeah, Midge is the best. Everyone else is terrible. So the who would you date is going to be real easy. Yeah. <laughs> It's really easy. I like wanted to say something beforehand, like, well, one of us has to choose someone besides Midge. And I was like, there is no one. This this whole episode is who in this movie would you date? <laughs> it's the whole episode. So yeah. uh, falling in love. What happens is he brings Madeline back to his apartment. And the next thing we see, she's like in bed. Naked. It's very Russia with love. Oh, yeah. And he's like kind of puttering around when she wakes up. And that's what she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know what's going on. And he says, oh, you know, you, you fell into the bay. He doesn't say you jumped in because he's still working from the assumption that this is a woman who's having some mental issues. He doesn't want to be talking to her about potential attempted suicide. Right. Stress her out unnecessarily. Right. She says she doesn't remember anything. Right. So he doesn't want to like push her. Right. And so he's also in touch with Gavin and is saying like, hey, she's awake. I'll bring her back soon. Right. But. But. And he does. He does, yes. That is his intention. But later, she shows back up at his apartment. What? Whoa. His apartment that Nick told me the owners changed the appearance of outside because they were tired of people coming to look at. Really? Yeah. Because it's right near where he lives, like where he lives in the city. Oh, okay. So he was like, I I know that street. So he found it on Google Maps and looked it up and the owners purposefully changed it to not look like the scene. That's awesome. Uh, so she shows up and she's putting a letter in his mailbox when he walks up behind her. It is like, what you're doing there? And so she says, oh, I wanted to thank you. And then they decide to hang out and they take a drive. Do they hang out right after that? Or is it like a, they make an appointment? So they wind up hanging out a couple of times. That right. time they hang out right after. She's come back that day, the next day. Yeah. And he like catches her sort of going into his apartment, like you said, leaving the mail. Yeah. And he suggests like, oh, we should go this day. He says that. She asks him, like, oh, you can just leave during the middle of the day? Like, what's your job? And he says, I'm a wanderer. Oh, right. I forgot about that Oh, line. yeah. Because that comes up a couple of times. Yeah. So he says, I'm a wanderer. And so that's what they do. They decide to wander. Right. And they go on this, like, driving trip around town. They go on. The thing is, in all this, they go out multiple right. times. Yeah. But this all, like, builds up to a point. Right. We get so kind of a have, montage of them right. hanging so out a bunch of times. multiple, like, adventures leading up to they go to Mere Woods together. Right. Which is where all the redwoods are. They're wandering through, and eventually they end up on the beach, and they have a passionate moment, a moment of passion. And this is a moment where you're like, wait a minute, buddy. You were supposed to be investigating your friend's wife to make sure that she's not a crazy lady, and spending time with her might have let you find out more about this, but now it seems like you're making out with her. (laughs) (laughs) It seems suspicious. Let's see. Oh, nope, they're still making out. Something is fishy. Does your friend know about this? Because it seems weird. Yeah. It's also never really addressed that he's falling in love with a married woman. Uh, his friend's wife. <laughs> his friend's wife. Whom he has been hired to investigate. Yeah. Not a lot of detective ethics happening. I don't think there are detective ethics based only on movies. That's my sole understanding of detectives. Yeah, that's fair. But while they're making out, she tells him about this nightmare she's had, and he pieces it together, and it ends up being this old mission, Mission San Juan Bautista, Mm -hmm. which is, he says, about 100 miles south of San Francisco. Yeah. And it's basically kept as a museum to look like how a mission would have looked when it was founded. During Spanish colonization. Right, during Spanish colonization. Because all up the coast, basically every city in California started as a Spanish mission. Right. So they drive down there to, like, investigate this nightmare. Because I think he's starting to kind of believe that she is possessed. Yeah, he definitely is. He's been seeing all these clues. He's been investigating the legend of Carlotta Valdez. Right. And he's sort of coming along with it. And so now... Madeline is the same age as Carlotta when she committed suicide. So what he and Gavin are worried about is that she's going to commit suicide. Bring the story to completion. To bring the story to completion. So they're trying to like stop that before it happens and investigate what's going on. Now, on the subject of the mission. Yes. Speaking of, you mentioned the Hotel McKittrick no longer looks like that. No, it's the... It's literally Jimmy Stewart's apartment. Oh, like, okay. That normal-looking that apartment building. No longer looks that way because yeah. they wanted to stop that. Well, so the mission is a real mission. Right. And it also no longer looks the way that it does in the movies. And it no longer looked that way when they made the movie. 
Because when they scouted it, they said, this mission would be a great place to shoot this scene. And they said, great. They locked it down, ready to go. In between location scouting and shooting, the mission tore down the tower because it was rotten. So the tower that you see in the movie is a map painting. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. I had no idea. Right. Wow. Again, this testament to the quality of every piece of this movie is yeah. that if you're not really looking for it, you can't really tell that the tower's not real. Have they rebuilt the tower or is it? No, it's not there. If you visit still. the mission, there's no tower there. Crazy. Which it, the tower's so important to this movie. So the one that they paint is actually taller than the real tower was because at that point they're like, yeah, might as well go yeah, for it. Yeah, why not? So they're in the stables because she, she remembers carts. They're looking around, but the real, the real important moment is the tower. Right. They make out a bit, then she runs away. They do the old grab and stab. One of the best things to ever come out of the toast. R.I.P. It's coming back. It's coming back. But, oh boy, that description makes so much sense. So if you don't know, Hayes Code has specific rules on kissing, where you can't move around too much in certain ways. This is why in old movies they do this, where the man just grabs the woman and pulls her really close, and then they just hold their faces together. Because they can't move. So... It's the old grab and stab. So they make out and then they have to go investigate the bell tower. And she runs away. She runs up, but he can't run after her because he's got acrophobia. Oh, no. So he's climbing up and he gets vertigo. So he gives him vertigo. So he can't follow her up. And then you hear a scream and a body comes careening past the window and hits the ground. And it's ruled a suicide, and Madeline Elston is dead. And this whole time, Scotty's just been like holding on to the pillars, like slowly trying he to can't cr- move. climb up the stairs, but he can't yeah. do it. It's too high. He's got acrophobia. Yeah. And now Madeline's dead, as dead as a doornail. So, end of movie. Only three points this week. Yep, we're done. Bye. We're done. Bye. Then Midge comes <laughs> in, and Midge starts training for the space program because Midge is the best person ever. It turns into the right stuff. But I would put just Midge, Midge on the moon. Midge, Midge to the moon is going to be Vertigo 3, Midge to the moon. It's just the right stuff, but Midge is all of the characters. Okay, so point four. It starts with Jimmy Stewart. It starts at Cape Canaveral. <laughs> it starts at Cape Canaveral. Um, so it starts with Jimmy Stewart in a mental hospital. Right. He's basically gone catatonic. And Midge is there trying to take care of him and wake him up because she's a really good friend. She just wants to be there for her friend. And eventually, he like starts making progress, moving forward with his life. You know who comes to visit him when he's in the psych ward? Who? Midge. Yeah, that's what I was saying. You said that? Oh, I'm sorry. I was too busy realizing that we skipped a big Midge moment in uh, point number three, which is that Midge painted herself into the Carlotta uh, painting yeah. because he had talked about this painting and how... The woman's pretty and stuff like that. And this is the be- one of the best Midge moments. She's like, hey, you should see what I'm looking at. And it's the painting of Carlotta, but with Midge's face. So improvement? Yes. Yes. A better painting. And she offers it to him. She's like, you want it? And he says it's not funny and he leaves. And then she's really... And it is funny. It's, it's so funny. It's so funny. And she's really angry with herself. She's like, stupid, stupid, stupid. And this is really sad because this is like Midge made a move. Yeah. Where she's like kept back. She's done her own thing. But this is Midge being like... You should hang up a painting on me. She's putting it out there. Yeah. She's seeing... She's really upset and it's sad. It is sad. Poor Midge. We skipped that. Midge doesn't get a satisfying ending. No. Well, Midge... That's because Midge disappears in the last chunk of the movie. She's in the alternate ending, but the alternate ending is stupid. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't think I know about this alternate ending. I'm excited to hear. This is why you watch movies on DVD, because they take you right to the bonus features. Yeah. By the way, this DVD started with both the modern and then uh, old school Universal logo, and I appreciated that. That's nice. That's the nice old school touch. Universal logo is great. It is. It's really cool. But so he's out of the hospital and he's like trying to get his life together. But then he sees a woman who looks familiar. Peculiar? He feels like he's seen her somewhere before. And that gives him vertigo. Does it? No. <laughs> so he follows her into his apartment because, or her apartment because he's a super creep in the last hour of this movie. Uh, oh my gosh, this part is so creepy, but this is also the Hitchcockiest part. Oh, for sure. Because this is the part where Jimmy Stewart turns into Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. So he's super creepy, and he follows her into her apartment and is just like, who are you? Trying to demand everything. Right, and the movie almost sets it up at first, like this is just another woman who looks just like her. Uh, who just coincidentally happens to be played by Kim Novak with brown hair. Well, it's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> 
Just reducing the amount of actors you have to pay. Yeah, exactly. It's like in a play. You do that all the time. Right. So he's talking to her. She's like, oh, my name is Judy Barton. I'm from Salina, Kansas. I came out to the big city to make it. I'm a shopkeeper. Yeah, nothing fancy about me. I'm just a plain little girl from yeah. Kansas. You know, playing that old... Who are you, weirdo, who's yeah. in my apartment? Why are you here? <laughs> Stop following me. <laughs> so eventually he leaves, but only after they basically agree to have lunch, I think. Yeah, they agree to get together again. Yeah. Is this when we get the letter, or is it after? So, no, because they, like, get together. That happens first. Yeah. Okay, so they get together, and he's super creepy because he's immediately like a hundred percent on board with this like barely a relationship yeah because he mentally immediately says you're just like madeline so i'm going to treat you as though you are madeline yeah and so he and is still very much recovering from this suicide that he witnessed right he's not fully mentally recovered and this really sets him back oh yeah and it's so he really tries bad. to jump back into it. He tries to jump back into it, and then he starts trying to make her into Madeline. He buys her Madeline's clothes. He has her change her hair. He has her dye her hair and turn it into, like, put it in the same style. Right. Yelling at her the whole time. Right. She's clearly very upset with it. And this is where it gets very Hitchcocky because Alfred Hitchcock famously would, psychologically and in some cases, although Kim Novak says not her, yeah. but in some cases, sexually abuse actresses. Right. And really all with that same idea of Hitchcock was going to do whatever it took to make his movie perfect. And he didn't really care about the abuse that that visited on other people. Right. And so it's kind of interesting to see him directing a movie that is the same idea. Yeah, it's creepy. It's very creepy. And those are very unsettling scenes where Judy is saying like she doesn't want to do this. Yeah. And she eventually exceeds and she goes along with it. But some of this is happening in the apartment with it's all lit by the neon light outside the window. Yeah. It's the lighting's really creepy. Everything is creepy. It's also showed in a way where you're supposed to find it really creepy and gross. Right. Which is what's fascinating about right. it. Right. It's almost like film as confessional. Yeah. Honestly, though, that's really unsettling. But one of the creepiest things to me is when they're at the store and he's buying, he's like, oh, I'll buy you clothes. And he's buying her clothes, but he's insisting on clothes that are like the exact outfit he first sees Madeline. Madeline in. in. And he's insisting on it. And she's explicitly saying, like, I do not want to wear this. Yeah. But he's insistent on it. Yeah. It's really creepy. But so while this is happening, it's basically two-thirds the way through the movie. Judy sits down and writes a letter laying out the twist. By the way, this letter writing scene is not in the book. No. In the book, you just find out the twist at the very end. The letter writing scene was added in, and Hitchcock actually tried to cut it. He decided that he didn't want it, that it took some of the drama out of the story. But... The Paramount studio chief, uh, Barney Balaban, insisted on keeping it in. Yeah. So she sits down and writes her confession. It's like, dear Johnny, I am Madeline. Madeline is me. Gavin hired me to play her. Basically, so what happens is... This is a crazy plan. Yeah. So Gavin wants to kill his wife. He knows Jimmy Stewart is a former detective with Vertigo. Because it was in the newspaper when was, yeah. the cop died. So he sees his old friend. So he's like, what I'm going to do is push my wife off a bell tower, but make it so the only person there to witness it is Jimmy Stewart. Who he won't go up the bell, tower. the bell tower. So he hires Judy Barton to dress up as his wife. Get Jimmy Stewart to fall in love with her. No, just have him follow her so that he starts to think that she's crazy that she is possessed by Carlotta. He makes that whole story up, essentially. Right. And so he tells her to go around and, like, put the flowers and everything so that when she runs up the bell tower, Elston is up there with his wife, who he then pushes off the bell tower. So that's why, that's when Madeline dies, and Judy basically immediately runs away, dyes her hair back to brown. And Judy was also Gavin's mistress, right? Yeah, I think so. And she was supposed to disappear forever. Right. But the problem is... Gavin ditched her, and she had actually fallen in love with Jimmy Stewart. Which is why she also goes along with all this stuff when they do reconnect. Because she's in love with him, and she wants to keep that going. Yeah, so she's in love, and she wants it to keep going. But eventually, I think it's the hair that does it. Johnny realizes that she was Madeline. Right. So Judy writes all of this out in a letter explaining it and so that's where we the audience find out the plot line but then instead of sending it she tears it up and throws it in the trash can right so the audience knows but jimmy stewart doesn't right but then 
he starts to get suspicious as he realizes more and more that she actually does look exactly like Madeline. Right. It's not a close thing. It's yeah, an explicit it's thing. It's almost like they're played by the same character. What? Uh, Fun fact, though, Kim Novak, not the first choice for the role. Really? Yeah, the first choice got pregnant, and Hitchcock was really mad at her for that. Ooh, that does not sound like it would have been a pleasant conversation. No. Um, so he had to borrow Kim Novak from Columbia. So once Johnny figures this out, he drives out. He forces her into his car. Yes. Drives her to the San Juan Batista. To, to the mission. To the mission. And is basically dragging her up to the top of the bell tower to confront her. Yeah. And so, point five, is the very last, like, five minutes of the movie. They're on the bell tower. She basically explains everything and that she is in love with him. And it's kind of like, oh, they're going to fall for each other, right? Except that he's really mad. And he's really mad. But like in a normal movie, you'd be like, this is where he gets mad. But eventually they kind of like figure it out and can move on. Right. Except that in this movie, she's an accomplice to a murder. Yeah. But she's a woman. So it doesn't mean, so it means she has no actual culpability in murder. Only men can commit murder unless it's a poisoning. Then it's a woman. Oh, okay. This is how mystery novels work, it seems to me. That is that is fair. Although I was reading a couple of pieces about Vertigo, and one of the things that I liked about it was uh, an essay by Richard Brody in The New Yorker. Yeah. Where he was saying that one of the things about Vertigo is that the end of the movie kind of puts all the pieces back in place, or at least it puts them back in place and offers sort of moral judgment on yeah. the scenario. Because at the end of the movie, Scotty's Vertigo is cured. because Early on in the movie, or at least earlier, Midge had said that... I think in scene two. Yeah, Midge said that a doctor said one of the things that he needed to cure his acrophobia would be basically another trauma to shake him out of it. Yeah. And so at the end of the movie, that trauma happens. His acrophobia is cured and also justice is done that this person who was involved right. in the murder gets her sort of divine retribution. Right. Hollywood justice through a nun. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So in a not too subtle moment. So what happens is they're up there on the tower. He finds out everything. He's really mad. And then this nun is like, what's happening up here? And she comes up. And that's when she steps back and falls to her death. <laughs> so now Madeline and Judy are dead. And then the nun starts ringing the bell. Which seems weird to me. Roll credits. Yes. End of movie. End of movie. Unless Hitchcock hadn't gotten his way. Because the censors wanted to add another scene to the movie. Because the censors felt like, you've got to show that you can't get away with murder. So there's an additional scene that comes after the nun that got cut and wasn't in it. And it was only restored on the home video release in which it then cuts to my girl Midge sitting in her apartment in her studio, listening to the radio. And the radio is talking about how Gavin is in Europe on the run, but the authorities are tracking him down and are close to catching him. And that's when then Scotty gets home and she's like, oh no, Scotty. And the two of them sit down and then you fade to black. And so the only thing that adds is maybe Midge and Scotty are together, which doesn't make sense. And Gavin's going to be punished. Yeah, that oh, that sounds so... I'm surprised that didn't make it into the movie. It's pretty pointless. It's so pointless, but I'm so glad that got cut. So was Hitchcock. Because Gavin does get away with it. Yes, I mean, which is an interesting piece to this. Right. Gavin's role in all of this is very strange. Yeah, he's kind of like an ultimate puppet master. Yeah, it's such a bizarre Everything plan. Everything he wants happens. Yeah. In That's a way, true. yeah, he wins. Gavin is the winner of this movie. That's true. In Vertigo 4, he sabotages the International Space Station and Midge has to fight him. Great. <laughs> Why? Uh, Vertigo 4 is basically Geostorm, <laughs> but starring Midge instead of Gerard Butler. It would have been a much better movie. Can you imagine? Midge is also the president and Midge is also the evil secretary of state. And also the uh, lead scientist on the space station that Gerard Butler falls in love with. The only actor who's the same from the original Geostorm is Zazie Beetz, because Zazie Beetz is great. Yeah, she was good. But yeah, so that's Vertigo. Wow, I'm so glad I saw this. This movie was so good. Yeah, I'm surprised you hadn't seen it before. I had to watch it in two parts because I started it very late and I was very tired. And I fell asleep the first time. Not because it was bad. I was just very tired. Yeah. Uh, it was almost more fun because then I got to spend two days watching Vertigo. And then you can stay really focused because it is kind of a long movie. I got to spend two days with Mitch. Um, so what do you think? Do you think Scott and Judy is a believable relationship? Not really. I love, here's the thing. Love the movie. It's yeah. real good. I don't really buy the romance too much. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. I think I that agree. as much as they seem to be really into each other, A, mad creepy. 
Yeah. The whole premise is creepy. It's creepy at first because he thinks it's his friend wife and because she's in it to plot a murder. Right. So they're both creepy. Everyone's motivations are terrible. Everyone's actions are terrible. Right. Everyone is a terrible Everyone's person. awful in this movie. And then later on, he's super manipulative and domineering. And it's also bad. And I don't actually believe that, I mean, yes, domineering and bad relationships exist, but this one wouldn't. Yeah. Partially because, again, it's founded on a murder plot. Right. So I say no. So where are you going to rate it? Like three. Yeah, I think that's fair. I wrote four in my notes, and as I talk about it, I have adjusted it downward. Yeah, I think a three is where I land, too. Yes. Do you think Scotty and Judy are dateable? No. 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 My notes say, Scotty, no. Creepazoid, Judy, no. Murderer. Um... Do we even need to ask? It's Midge. We both would date Midge. There is only one. It's not if I had to pick one person in this movie to date. It is. There is one person in this movie to date. Yeah. There's no other options. No. That's it. It's just Midge. Yeah. So only Scotty survives the movie, so they would not end up together. Yeah. That's fair. So that solves that question. That, That solves that. And Midge enters NASA. Yeah. That's... The only logical next Can't argue that Hitch. with that. It's clearly what Hitchcock was setting up for the sequel. Um, so I think that does it. This was a weird episode. This is a weird episode. Okay. Uh, uh, just bear with us. It's a weird movie. It is a weird movie. It's a good movie. It's great. Every piece of it is super well done. Isn't there kind of like a pink elephants and Dumbo scene in the middle? Where it gets really trippy. Yeah, the dream sequence, which yeah. I love. I love that. Yeah, it's so great. Where it's all these weird graphics and like zooming faces and... Lights. Yeah, and you don't know what's happening. You aren't really sure it's a dream sequence until it ends. The movie just starts doing this weird stuff. And I loved it. It was right. so cool. Yeah. It looked awesome. That's the thing. Everything about this, it's done with such basic technology. Like the fact that the central special effect is put a camera on a dolly and while you're moving on the dolly, change the zoom, zoom settings. Yeah. But it's all so well done. No, it's great. Yeah. Whereas, like, you can watch a movie that spends so much more on special effects and they look worse so easily. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, that's it. Yeah. It was great. So, next week, we'll be back with the last Will pick of the March-April cycle. Alexander Payne's 2004 wine country sad com, Sideways. Boy, is it sad. And is it calm? Yeah. <laughs> I laughed. I laughed. Sometimes. Yeah. You can see our whole schedule for the rest of April on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find us there and everywhere at Heart of Podness. We're going to be putting together our plans for May and June pretty soon, so now is the time to send us movie suggestions. You can do that, of course, at heartofpodness at gmail.com. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. And if you write us a review, tell us a person from a painting that you would like to have possess you. I'd be the one from that Ray Lichtenstein one where she's like, why doesn't he love me? Um, I think I am the lady in the red dress in Nighthawks. Oh, Sitting cool. at the diner late at night looking sad. Great choice. I've been there. <laughs> All right, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Don't be a murderer. Mmm, there's an idea. The first thing I wrote was, be Midge, and <laughs> everyone will date you, except for Jimmy Stewart, which is okay, because he's yeah, terrible. he's awful. My other one was, paint a period-looking painting of yourself, develop a false legend around it, establish that legend on the web to establish, to give it credence, and then lure them in with mystery. That's even more elaborate than catfishing. <laughs> right, but more it's fun. catfishing through paintings. <laughs> I love it. Okay, until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! The Mitches, the Mitches, I'm Lori, gonna eat kitches, the Mitches is really the limit. With teeth like piranhas, they drive you bananas, if you let them get under your cement. What if I actually just breed like this the whole movie so you had to edit around it? Mm-hmm. <sighs>